We'll read this morning from 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the more sure prophetic word, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Traditions, dreams, visions, an audible voice, messages from angels, miraculous tongues, a word of prophecy, You can find people claiming all of these things as authoritative in the church today. Now, some we can quickly discern are not of the Lord. We're told in Galatians, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, which is the word ananthema, which is to say, damned as a heretic. Now, so we can quickly look at Mormonism and and see that because it preaches another gospel, a gospel of salvation based on your own self-effort, purported to have been taught to Joseph Smith by an angel, we can quickly see this does not pass the test of Galatians 1 verse 8. But what about the Roman Catholic claim that Uh, the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church and the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the pronouncements of the Pope carry equal weight with the written scriptures. What about when a Pentecostal believer claims to have a vision or a word of prophecy or tongues? Should we trust that? Well, during the Reformation, these things were addressed, particularly Uh, the claims of the Roman Catholic Church, but also claims of a more charismatic nature as well. And the Reformers taught what we call the five solas of the Reformation. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. Now these are Latin terms that mean that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. When the Reformation happened, 
much attention was rightly given to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That was what historians refer to as the material cause of the Reformation. But there was actually a deeper issue at play, uh, something that historians call the formal cause of the Reformation. As R.C. Sproul said, the underlying issue, the issue that was not in the limelight but nevertheless was at the center of the whole dispute, was the question of authority. Specifically, the question of the authority of Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church, now, don't don't get me wrong, they they didn't dismiss Scripture. That They don't to this day. They believe it to be authoritative. They acknowledge Scripture to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And they acknowledge its authority in the church. In fact, they have a doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration, the very words of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit. However, the Roman Catholic Church also believes that the Spirit continues to speak and to reveal God's will through the pronouncements of the Pope and the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church and the traditions of the Church. And so they actually think that there are two streams of revelation. One is the written word and one is the traditions and the pronouncements of the Church itself. The truth is that if what they believe is true, then this view of revelation by virtue of being new, right, new revelation given to the Pope or to the church would automatically carry greater weight and authority than the Scriptures would. If not on paper, at least in practice it would. I mean, let's face it, humans like shiny new things, This is why people spend themselves into debt, because we think we have to have the latest, greatest, newest thing that is available. Revelation from God is no different. If there is new revelation, of course we're going to be interested in it, more interested than something that's thousands of years old. The Reformers, however, along with all thinking Christians, noted that church councils and popes often made errors. They contradicted one another. They taught things that were false at times. And so they formulated this doctrine of sola scriptura. It expresses our conviction that Scripture alone is the final authority, not the Roman Catholic Church's interpretation of Scripture, not the pronouncements of the Pope, not the traditions of the Church, not private revelation, but the Scripture alone. Now, this becomes important uh, even in our day uh, when it comes to the Pentecostal and charismatic movements. I mean, these movements believe that God speaks new revelation to His people through the gifts of the Spirit, through tongues, unknown angelic tongues, through visions, dreams, and prophecies. Most of the time, in the less cultish and more mainline kind of Pentecostal churches, uh, these revelations are about um, things that the Scripture simply doesn't speak to. Who you should marry, for instance. There's no verse in here that that says, Stu, marry Michelle. It's just not in the Bible, right? But Pentecostals will often have a word from God, and interestingly, it's usually the guy 
who tells the girl that God told him that she was supposed to marry him. I know people that have had this said to them. On the more nefarious end of things, sometimes charismatic leaders will use these new revelations that they claim to have had to build cults around themselves, to take advantage of people financially, sexually. Now, this should be easy to refute, right? If they claim that God has told them something that is clearly in violation of the Scriptures concerning sexual morality, for instance, we should automatically know that they're wrong, that they're they're lying to us. This is not some new revelation. But sadly, many women are taken in and abused by such leaders. If someone says that God told them something, how do you argue with that? You're arguing with God, right? I know one man who was recently told he was blaspheming the Holy Spirit because he denied that such revelations were from God. So how are we supposed to respond to these sorts of claims? Well, I believe that we respond just as our Reformed forefathers did with the cry of sola scriptura. The very first sentence in our confession of faith says this, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, an infallible rule of all saving faith, knowledge, and saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Now, the authors of the confession didn't come up with this uh, on their own, out of thin air. They got it from the scripture itself. And sola scriptura does not mean that we dismiss tradition entirely or that we deny the Holy Spirit, what it means is that we recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures as supremely authoritative. This is what the Apostle Peter is saying in the text that we are looking at this morning. And we're going to look at it under four headings, Peter's cause, Peter's confession, Peter's confidence, and Peter's charge. First, Peter's cause. Why is he writing these things to the church. Well, he tells us in verses 12 through 15, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Now, did you catch that? He spoke about reminding them three times. His cause is to remind us of what we have learned and been taught concerning the gospel of Jesus the Christ. Now, I say it that way specifically to remind us that Peter, Paul, and the other apostles were teaching Jesus as the Christ. That is, they they weren't teaching something new. They were teaching something that they had gotten from the Old Testament Scriptures. They were teaching that Jesus is the Christ spoken of in the Old Testament Scriptures. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. It means the anointed one. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament is Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus Messiah or Jesus the anointed one. And you know what always strikes me is 
somewhat comical, but also a little ignorant. When I hear charismatic leaders in the church say that if someone speaks ill of them or calls them out for some heretical teaching or that they'll be protected from harm on the mission field or whatever because God said, touch not my anointed. Well, that verse is speaking of God's protection of the patriarchs. It's certainly not a promise uh, for physical protection for Christians today. Otherwise, how would we explain the suffering and the death of the apostles and the prophets? It's not a command to test uh, to not test all teaching by the scriptures, right? That verse is not saying, well, somebody claims to be anointed by God. You can't question what they say. No, we're, we're commanded to question. We're commanded to examine the scriptures to see if what they're teaching is true. The Bereans did this with the apostle Paul, and that we're told that they were noble for doing so. Secondly, the patriarchs, as we saw in our recently concluded exposition of Genesis, were shadows of the reality that is found in Christ. In a very real sense, Jesus is God's anointed. We are united to him by faith, but we should not presume to put ourselves in his place as the anointed one. That title belongs to Christ alone. And my point is the apostles themselves taught that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one of God And Peter is writing this letter to remind us of that, to stir us up, he says. He wants us aroused, awakened, excited about the teaching of Christ from the Old Testament, not neglecting it in favor of new revelation. Now, he knows that he and the other apostles were soon to die. The apostle James was the first one to die. He was martyred in about 45 AD. But the others, from Peter to Paul, with the exception of John, all died in about a 10-year period from 64 to 74 AD. Peter knew that his death was imminent. He says so in this passage. And so he wanted to leave a record of his teaching concerning Jesus, the Christ. In verse 14, he says, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus showed me. And what he means by putting off his tent is the tent of his flesh, the the place that his spirit dwells. He means that his spirit and his flesh are about to be separated from one another by death. Then he says in verse 15, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. This is why he wrote the letter, to remind us that Jesus is the anointed one of God, promised throughout the Old Testament scriptures. But we also need to understand that Peter knew that the Holy Spirit was inspiring new scripture through the apostles themselves. He says as much in chapter 3 when he writes, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, that is, the long-suffering 
of Christ and the salvation that is found in him. He goes on and says, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of Scripture. The rest of Scripture. Peter considered Paul's letters to be inspired. He considered them to be Scripture. He knew that the Holy Spirit was speaking through the apostles. His purpose is to stir up believers to be aware and excited about what the Holy Spirit has communicated to us about Christ in the Old Testament and in the newly inspired scriptures of the New Testament. He restates this purpose later in the letter when he writes in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. That's the writings of the New Testament. So Peter's cause is to get us stirred up and excited about seeing Christ in all of Scripture. Next, we have Peter's confession in verses 16 through 18. Here, Peter makes the case that the apostles weren't telling tales. They weren't propagating a myth. They all died for their testimony about Christ. You don't die for a fairy tale. You die for what you believe to be the truth. They told what they knew to be true because they were eyewitnesses of it. They walked with Jesus. They were taught by Jesus. They watched as he suffered and died, and then they saw him after he was resurrected and glorified. In fact, this was a requirement to be an apostle, according to Peter. In Acts chapter 1, Peter suggests that they need to find a replacement for Judas, the betrayer. And here's the criteria he gives for the replacement. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection." The Apostle Paul, who saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, says, After that, he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The apostles were eyewitnesses to the resurrected and glorified Christ, sent by him with the message of salvation. And that's what it means to be an apostle, to be a sent one, and in this case, sent by the risen Christ. There are no apostles today because none of them have seen the risen Christ in person and been commissioned by him. And so Peter then relates something that he saw as an eyewitness. He relates the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, this account is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus goes up on a high mountain and he takes with him Peter, James, and John, his his inner circle. And there they see Jesus transfigured before them into a shining and glorious appearance. And he communes and speaks with the spirits of Moses and Elijah. And then Matthew records and says this, While he was still speaking, behold, 
a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Now, I think most of us would be unnerved if we were to see the spirits of Moses and Elijah. But to see Christ transfigured and glorified, shining with the brightness of the sun. What a sight that must have been. And then a glory cloud descends, much like the ones that descended on the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Covenant. Another testimony that Christ himself is the true temple of God. A cloud descended on the tabernacle and the temple, and now it descends on Christ. And then a voice thunders out of that cloud, the very voice of God. No wonder they fell on their faces in fear. Peter was there. Can you imagine that experience? I imagine that 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 image and that voice must have been seared into his memory. Anyone who says that church councils are authoritative will remember that Peter sat on church councils with other apostles in Acts 15. Anyone who says that tongues are authoritative, well, Peter was there at Pentecost. He spoke in tongues. He, the first time it ever happened, he was one of the participants. He heard others speaking in tongues, and they were real languages, by the way, that other people could understand and hear the glories of the gospel proclaimed in their own language. Anyone who says that visions, appearances, and dreams are authoritative, Peter had those as well. And anyone who says that they've heard an audible voice of God, so did Peter. It caused him to fall to his face on the ground in fear. That's not something you hear from these modern so-called apostles or pretend prophets. Peter had all those experiences. And what does he say about them? Well, in verse 19, he tells us, what he thinks. And this is what I am calling Peter's confidence. He says in verse 19, we also have the more sure prophetic word, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What's that you say, Peter? Instead of looking for a voice from heaven or a vision, we would do well to heed the more sure word that we have, which is the Scriptures. And we know he's talking about the Scripture because he goes on to explain it in verses 20 and 21, which we'll look at in a moment, and tells us he's speaking of the Scriptures. But first, let's look closely at verse 19. This is the key verse in our text this morning, and I want us to notice something important. The very first word of verse 19, we... That is significant. Peter says, we have the scriptures. He doesn't say, you have the scriptures, I have a voice from heaven. He says, we have the scriptures. He includes himself. Now, that's, that's powerful because Peter was an apostle commissioned by the resurrected Christ. He had dreams, visions, spoke in tongues, heard the voice of God, sat on church councils, and he includes himself and says, we have the scriptures, which are 
a more sure word than the voice of God speaking on the mountain. Peter is confident of this. Now, that's pretty amazing if you think about it. But what does he mean by saying that the Scriptures are a more sure word? Well, this is the same Greek word that's translated elsewhere in the Scriptures as steadfast or firm. It means that the Scriptures are stable. They're unshakable. They're confirmed. They're certain. Someone's testimony that they heard the voice of God is not that certain. I mean, are we sure they actually heard the voice of God and not the voice of Satan attempting to deceive or perhaps an overactive imagination or maybe they're mentally ill or just a liar? How can we know? What exactly was said? How good is this person's memory? How trustworthy is their testimony? Can we be certain they're conveying exactly what was said by this supposed voice that they heard or the vision or dream or whatever that they had? But the scriptures are sure. They're certain. They're written. They're unchanging. They're not subject to the fallible memory of men. And though various cults and wicked men have attempted to rewrite the scriptures to suit their own ends, God has preserved the Bible for us without error, without loss or addition. They're stable. They're steadfast, unchanging, infallible. They can be depended upon. We have the written scriptures. We can be confident that the story won't change. The requirements for salvation won't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. This is Hebrews 13, 8 and 9. We're warned multiple times throughout the New Testament not to believe every new teaching that comes along, but to build our faith on the stable and unchanging truth of Scripture. Incidentally, this is why a written confession of faith, one that is actually adhered to, is so important. It's stable and unchanging. It's saying, here is what we believe the Scriptures teach, and it doesn't change from this year to next. It doesn't change from this generation to the next. It's stable. It's dependable. The gospel is the same It's the same gospel that Peter and Paul preached is the one that we want to preach. Churches that have no written confession, that claim no creed but Christ or no creed but the Bible, they're just being dishonest. They have a creed. They have a confession. They believe certain things about the Scripture. They're just not honest enough to write it down so that it can be examined by others. Their creed is whatever the preacher says it is this week, and it might be different next week in his sermon. But with a confession, especially a historic one like ours, we're doing two things. We're saying, here is what we believe the Scriptures teach, and we can be held accountable to it. Our confession doesn't change. It doesn't change from week to week depending on what Brian or Paul or myself teach. No, the confession is the same. Second, we're saying we didn't come up with this on our own. This is what previous generations of the church have believed. They've confessed these same doctrines. And and the, the men who wrote our confession, 
They were standing shoulder to shoulder with others and standing on the, what had been passed down to them from previous generations. Our confession shares much of the same language with the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration. And it is for that very reason, because they wanted to confess that they were standing shoulder to shoulder with other believers. In the preface to the confession, they actually wrote this, We have no itch to clog religion with new words, but do readily acquiesce in that form of sound words which hath been, in consent with the Holy Scriptures, used by others before us, hereby declaring before God, angels, and men our hearty agreement with them in that wholesome Protestant doctrine which, with so clear evidence of Scriptures, they have asserted. To the extent that they could, they used the same language the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists had used because they wanted to show our agreement with other Orthodox believers. They only changed what was necessary to express our different views regarding a few things, covenants, baptism, church government. By holding to such a historic confession of faith, we're testifying that our understanding of Scripture is not only secure from change from this week to next, but it's secure from change from 350 years ago to today. And they expressed that they were confessing belief that was consistent with other churches before them. The scriptures are unchanging, and so we shouldn't look for new teaching and new insights that have never been heard before, new revelation. Rather, we should be excited, stirred up by way of reminder. The words of the old hymn, I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings like nothing else can do. I love to tell the story. T'will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Rather than a new revelation that's constantly shifting and changing, we have a more sure word, the old, old story of Jesus and his love. This is a word that comes from God, and it is as unchanging as he is. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't continue to learn and grow in our understanding of the Scriptures. Of course we should. And just because some doctrine may be new to me doesn't mean that it's new. Our responsibility is to compare every teaching to the Scriptures themselves. The Scriptures are the only infallible authority. Most heresies, you know, aren't new either. They've been dealt with in the past. The creeds and the confessions of the church often arose because the church was confronting heretical teaching and refuting it by summarizing what the scriptures said on the subject. So the testimony of the historic church regarding what scripture teaches can be valuable. It can be an aid to safeguarding our understanding of the scriptures. But the scriptures themselves are the ultimate authority. Now, Peter goes on in verse 20 to tell us that the Scripture cannot be interpreted to mean something different to each one of us. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, how many times have you ever heard someone say something to the effect of, what this verse means to me? No. If someone says that, alarm bells should go off in your mind. 
We don't get our own private interpretation of Scripture that differs from one person to the next. Scripture isn't ours to manipulate in that way. Peter says in verse 21, For or because prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Scripture is God's word revealed to us, not the words of man. It's written, it's stable, it's unchanging. Yes, penned by men, but they wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, not by their own imagination, not by the opinions of others, even church councils, but by the Holy Spirit. The very words of Scripture are the words of God. Now, this raises several important issues. First, since the Holy Spirit is speaking in the Scriptures, any supposed new revelation that contradicts the Scriptures is obviously not from God. God does not contradict Himself. So Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon, which they call another testament of Jesus Christ, but it teaches things that contradict the Scriptures. It's not of God. It's demonic. A local apostle or prophet in a charismatic church who claims to have a word from God, if that word contradicts Scripture, it's obviously not from God. Perhaps demonically inspired, perhaps an overactive imagination, or maybe they're just a liar and a shyster. Isaiah 8 verse 20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. If new revelation contradicts Scripture, it is not of the Holy Spirit. It is of Satan. If new revelation says only what the Scripture has already said, it's unnecessary. And if new revelation doesn't directly contradict the Scripture, but supposedly reveals some specific information that the Bible doesn't contain, this is who you're supposed to marry, that's a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. They are saying, in effect, the Bible is good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't give you all the revelation you need. But what does Scripture say about this? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, not partially complete, complete, thoroughly equipped, not almost equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work, not just for some good works, but for every good work. Now, this isn't saying that the Bible is all you need in order to learn to be a computer programmer or a plumber or whatever. It's saying that the Scripture is entirely sufficient to equip you thoroughly for every good work of faith and obedience. You don't need another revelation to equip you to believe and obey Christ. Scripture is more than sufficient it is able to completely and thoroughly equip us for saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. We don't need a new revelation in a dream to believe in Christ. We only need the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. We don't need a new revelation in a prophetic word to obey God's will. We need the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. 
Secondly, since the Holy Spirit is speaking in the Scriptures, it is completely disingenuous to claim that by holding to the doctrine of sola scriptura, we are stifling the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who has spoken in the Scriptures. It is the Holy Spirit who continues to speak through the Scriptures and to enlighten our understanding of the Scriptures. To neglect the Scripture in favor of new revelation is to stifle the Spirit. Why would the Spirit speak directly, revealing new revelation, will and word of God in dreams, visions, word, tongues, to those who ignore what he has already said in the Scriptures? Jesus plainly says he won't. Luke Chapter 16, verse 31, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. They won't be persuaded. If they don't believe this, why would he send them something new? Ignoring the Scripture, treating it with contempt or neglect, mishandling it as somehow less authoritative in pursuit of new revelation, assures that whatever new revelation you might receive is not from the Holy Spirit. Now, sola scriptura doesn't mean that we dismiss tradition or that we somehow deny that the Holy Spirit is at work. It means that we recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit as sure and supremely authoritative in the Scriptures. Scripture is not at odds with the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the only infallible voice of the Spirit we have. Now, we have the Spirit within us. And sometimes the Spirit of God prompts us in our spirits, giving us guidance and discernment, but not speaking new revelation. And our understanding of those internal promptings of the Holy Spirit could be mistaken. We could get it wrong. We're not infallible. But the Scripture is infallible, unchanging, and sure. Verse 19, again, we also have the more prophetic word, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is Peter's charge to us. Pay heed to the scriptures as to a light shining in a dark place. What does he mean by to take heed to the Scriptures? Well, this is the same word that's used in 1 Timothy, where Paul tells Timothy, Till I come, give attention, there's our word, to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. He's supposed to focus his time and attention on reading, preaching, and teaching the Scriptures. Peter's saying the same thing. Give your careful attention to the study of the Scriptures, not the pursuit of new revelation. And remember, this is coming from the man who heard the voice of God speak from the cloud on the mountain. The Scriptures are more dependable, more trustworthy, more sure. Give your attention and your time to the Holy Spirit speaking through the written Word. It is a light shining in the darkness Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As we walk through this present world surrounded by the darkness of sin and unbelief, the more sure word of the Scripture 
is a light to guide us on our way. Psalm 19, verse 8, The statutes of the Lord are right and do rejoice the heart. The Lord's command is pure and doth light to the eyes impart. Obviously, it's speaking metaphorically here. Your Bible doesn't double as a flashlight when you need to get up and get a snack in the middle of the night. It gives moral and spiritual light to the mind, to the heart. It reveals to us the truth of God, of salvation through Christ alone, according to the grace of God alone. Without the Scriptures, we're still without excuse. Even the creation testifies that there is a Creator to whom we are to be held accountable. But the Scriptures reveal to us how to be saved. They reveal the plan of God to save His people by the perfect life and the sacrificial death of Christ. They reveal that it is by faith that we believe and are saved from the wrath to come. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Scriptures make us wise for salvation, Paul told Timothy. They reveal to us Christ in the way of salvation in Him. And so Peter charges us to take heed, to give your attention to the voice of the Spirit speaking in the written Word. You are people of the book. Read it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. The final part of verse 19 says that we are to give our attention to the Scriptures until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What day does Peter have in mind here? Any day or a specific one? Well, I would suggest he is speaking here of the return of Christ on the day of the Lord, as the Scripture called it. He speaks of the day of the Lord in chapter 3, telling us to be ready for it, to remain steadfast in our faith, to take heed to the gospel of Jesus Christ taught throughout the Scriptures. The morning star rising in our hearts is the coming of Christ in glory on that day. In Revelation, Jesus describes himself saying, I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come, Lord Jesus. In other words, Peter is telling us, cling to the scriptures as long as life endures. Look to the Scriptures as a light to guide you on your way. Walk till you finish your pilgrimage and do so in the light of the Word. If we do not attend carefully to the Spirit speaking in the Scriptures, we're like those who are lost in the darkness of pitch-black night, wandering to and fro. As Calvin commented, the darkness of death will always in part possess our minds until we shall be brought out of the person of the flesh and be translated into heaven. This then will be the brightness of day when no clouds or mist of ignorance shall intercept the bright shining of the sun of righteousness. Peter is reminding us that as long as we sojourn in this world, we need the scriptures to guide us as a light upon the path. Without this book, the more sure word of God to us We can do nothing but wonder in the darkness of ignorance and unbelief. Again, Calvin says, The Lord does not shine on us except when we take His Word as our light. Sola Scriptura does not mean that we dismiss tradition or deny the Holy Spirit. It means that we recognize the Holy Spirit's voice speaking sure and authoritative in the Scriptures. 
We're saved by justification through faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Our faith is accompanied by good works, prepared in advance that we should do them, for which we are equipped through the Scriptures. So also, Scripture alone is finally and ultimately and infallibly authoritative, the voice of God for all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. But Scripture is not alone. It is accompanied by the faithful traditions, creeds, confessions, and testimony of the church throughout history. We believe in sola scriptura, not nuda scriptura, bare scripture. That's, that's an understanding of scripture without any ecclesiastical context, as if previous generations of the church didn't have the Holy Spirit enlightening them. We like shiny new things, and so people are taken captive by someone who stands up and says, here's a new revelation I received from God this week. And they dismiss the preacher who quotes from the historic creeds and confessions or previous teachers and generations of the church that have gone before, who says, here is how the church throughout history has understood this text of Scripture. We should much more desire that than the person claiming to have new revelation. We have a more sure word. Let us take heed to it as a light that shines in a dark place. Let's pray.